0: family devotions on there. All of our upcoming events are on there. There's some really neat uh, content that exists on that newsletter. Uh, and so I want to make uh, you aware of that. And then in your program are a couple different announcements that are coming up. Uh, one of them is a Micah Bible study. I want to make you aware of that. One is a men's retreat. We're going to do a men's retreat this year uh, for the guys. We're really excited about that. And then one that's not in there, uh, but we have been talking about it, if you remember, is our, our uh, month of prayer. For Foster the Sierras in March. So, if you're not aware of what Foster the Sierras is, uh, it's a ministry that we uh, help oversee. That's part of our church that helps families foster and adopt children. So, we give resources to them, um, we, we give training for them, all kinds of things that that ministry does. And we're looking for you to pray for the for the month of March for the families that are fostering children. We have several in our church that are doing so. Several in our community. Uh, that are doing so. I want you to pray for those families. Pray for those kids uh, as they transfer into these homes, uh, and sometimes out of the homes and into uh, a new permanent family or a permanent family member. And so, there's a calendar at the info booth. If you just grab that, it'll kind of just guide you through what to pray for, the families to pray for, and the kids to pray for. So, I want to make you uh, aware of that. Okay. Now, so here's here's what we're doing. We've been gearing up. I've been mentioning it for the book of Exodus. So we start Exodus next week. We have all of the stuff out for Exodus, as you can see. Uh, Exodus, that's what that spells. It's not Eocodus. That's not what that is. It's Exodus. Uh, And that was made here in church, which is pretty cool, uh, hand-painted. And then in the foyer, when you came in, you'll see a hand-painted painting here of Moses, uh, which was done by some of our artists here in the church and so we're really gearing up for that and and one of the things that um as i was studying exodus i realized in order for us to really uh dive into that book for as long as we're going to dive into it for it would be good if we had some background in genesis which comes before exodus so in your program you've got some notes for today You also have a sheet on both sides of the sheet. One is an overview of Genesis, just a quick snapshot. And then the other side is an overview of Exodus. So hang that on your fridge, put it somewhere in your house so you can be praying through the book and and you can walk away with the most uh, as you can. Uh, And so I thought I was gone. The staff and I was gone this week. Yes, we were in Hawaii. Uh, So it was business related. It was church related. We actually are part of uh, a district of 100 churches. And we, um, one of, uh, not one, we have several churches, I think, uh, well over five churches, I think it's 12, that are located in Hawaii. So every seven years, instead of telling our 12 churches in Hawaii to come to California or Utah or Nevada, we, every seven years, have to go to Hawaii. So I know, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's for Jesus. We made it. It's okay. Um, I would ask you to pray. I I was asked uh, two years ago to sit on the board that oversees a uh, hundred churches, and um, it's been a tremendous opportunity. It's come with a lot of wrestling and hardship as well, but, uh, and, and I'm serving another two more years, and just pray because our church uh, has been asked to have a conservative biblical voice, a grounded gospel voice into a hundred different churches. So our, our little church in Truckee has the ability to influence well over a hundred churches, which I think... It's really amazing, and it's worth doing. So please pray uh, that in the next two years, we, we're part of a reform, if you will, uh, within, within those churches. So pray for us. And then I asked Dave, since I was gone this week, suffering for Jesus in Oahu, I asked Dr. Dave, who I thought was the only guy who could do this. He's the only guy that I thought could walk us through the entire book of Genesis in one Sunday morning. So that's what we're doing this morning. So buckle your seatbelts, because you are about to get a ton of information Uh, But it'll be a ton of fun, and uh, Dr. Dave is going to walk us through the book of Genesis. So please, would you welcome Dave Pastrell.
1: Thanks, Pastor Jesse. All right, thank you. Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. And I think we're doing a church plant in Hawaii sometime soon, aren't they? Aren't we? I'm going to uh, sign up for that one. Are we ready to go? Um, God is Trinity, and he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. For since the creation of the world is eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and four-footed animals and birds and crawling creatures. God is the creator of the universe. The most important verse in the Bible is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, The Bible does not begin with philosophical arguments for the existence of God, although those are fun to study. It simply begins with God. And it is behoved... uh, One of the reasons that God pours out his wrath upon mankind is, as we saw in that verse, that's Romans 1, a failure to give thanks. Because of who God is and because of what he's done, it is incumbent upon us that we are continually people who give him thanks. We can always find things to be thankful for. There was a... um, Fisherman who uh, hired a guide to take him up to uh, Alaska for a couple weeks of fishing. And after two weeks of fishing, he lamented the fact that he had only caught one fish. And he said to the guide, That fish cost me $2,000. And he said, Well, just be thankful you didn't catch two. <laughs> so, you know, that's fun. <laughs> In 1382, a long time ago, 700 years ago or so, William of Wickingham founded an independent boarding school in Hampshire on the southern coast of England. It was called Winchester College. And it was for boys ages 13 to 18. And the goal was to develop character. In fact, their motto was, manners maketh the man. Um, and so they had these boys there, and they were training them. In 1674, there was a man by the name of Thomas Ken. And he wrote what was called the Manual of Prayers for the Use of the Scholars of Winchester College in 1674. One of the hymns that he wrote for their private devotion was the was hymn called Awake My Soul and With the Sun. Uh, he, he wrote it at a time when the established church believed that only scripture should be sung in church, with an emphasis on the Psalms, and some considered it sinful and blasphemous to write new lyrics for church music akin to adding to the scriptures. And so with that in mind, Thomas Ken wanted the boys um, to read this, but with strict instructions to use them only for their private devotions. Listen to some of the writing. Um, This is what was being trained to to young minds and hearts at this age. It begins this way. This This is a hymn. It says, Awake, my soul, and with the sun, thy daily stage of duty run. Shake off dull sloth and joyful rise to pay thy morning sacrifice. And showing gratitude, every day is a gift from God, as in it is to be lived passionately and joyfully uh, for the honor and the glory of God. He goes on, thy precious time misspent, redeem each present day thy last esteem, improve thy talent with due care, and for the great day prepare. He's talking about the Bema. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ, where you and I will present ourselves to give an account of all that we have done in the body, whether good or bad. The good news is, is that it is an awards banquet and you get to be rewarded for the work that you have done. But that's what he's saying. He wants to prepare these boys. In other words, he's developing within their hearts eternal values as opposed to temporal values. He says, "'Wake and lift up thyself, my heart, and with the angels bear thy part, who all night long unwearied sing, high praise to the eternal King.'" enthusiasm, passion, worship. This is the kind of worship that's going on right now as we sit here in the very presence of God, the angels and, and the angelic beings singing and giving glory and honor and praise to God. He goes on, direct control suggests this day all I design or do or say that all my powers with all their might in thy soul glory may unite. And in the very last hymn, you've probably heard it before, The thought is, what would be the last thoughts that you would want these young boys or young men, young women to go into the world thinking? Or if you were mentoring somebody or discipling somebody, what are the last thoughts that you would want upon their heart and upon their mind as they entered into the day? Here it is. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Have you heard that? What's it called? It's called the doxology. Do you know what doxology means? Doxa, glory, logos, a word. It's a word of praise. It's a word of worship. Doxology is a word that we speak about God in praise and worship and adoration. And so the final thoughts before embarking on that new day was exactly those thoughts. And that is the most popular and the most frequently sung doxology in all the churches around the world. And it was originally started as private devotions for a group of young boys who are seeking to serve God and to know him more fully. So before we get to the book of Genesis, let's just ask God to um, bless our time together as we look into our words so that um, the goal of all of Bible study and the goal of all regeneration and sanctification is so that we could do just that with our lives, so that we could praise God, understanding that it's God from whom all blessings flow. And so creatures here below, creatures in heaven above, Everybody should be worshiping and praising and, and, and adoring God who is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your ministry in our lives. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us, first in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then through your word, the Bible. We thank you for your word, Father. It is divine revelation. It's a supernatural book, and it takes supernatural means to understand it, and so we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would lead us and guide us into all truth. The Bible is not a book that a man could write if he would, nor is a book that he would write if he could. This is dealing with divine revelation, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, all that has entered into the heart of man came through divine, not not through the the, the reasoning or the rationalization of man, but by divine revelation. And so we commit our time to you, Father, and ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. We are in the book of Genesis. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses as part of the Pentateuch, five-fold scroll. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What we want to do this morning is talk a little bit about that first book of the Bible because it gives us the foundation for which everything that God is going to do, both in time and in eternity. Um, It basically deals, firstly, with the sovereign election of God. God, because he's sovereign, chooses people. He chose Abraham. He did not choose Hammurabi. He chose Isaac, he did not choose Ishmael. He chose Jacob, he did not choose Esau. Joseph, he chose, he did not choose his brothers. He chose Ephraim, not Manasseh, or he chose Ephraim over Manasseh. And so we come into the New Testament, Ephesians 1, and it says that God chose you when? Before the foundation of the world. We enter into an eternal aspect now of what God is revealing here in the book of Genesis. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and so we go back even before Genesis one one, where time began and God began to deal with the human human uh, human uh, people. It's kind of redundant, isn't it? Well, whatever. <laughs> then we come to the Book of Exodus, and the Book of Exodus is all about Genesis is its beginnings. The Book of Exodus is what one word: redemption. Okay, God is forming the nation of Israel. He's going to put them in an incubator called Egypt, and then he's going to deliver them, and he's going to take them to ultimately into the promised land because if he's going to establish a nation, a nation needs two things, and he's land and it needs a constitution. He's going to give them the land of Canaan, and he's going to give them the Mosaic covenant. But the book of Exodus is God's redemption of his elect. He chose them before the foundation of the world. And, uh, or, or, or in time there in the book of Genesis. He takes them out of bondage through his enlightenment and then his law, and he redeems them, and they are become his own people. And then we have the book of Leviticus, which speaks of um, fellowship of God's elect, which we have through the shedding of what? Blood. How is it that man can approach an infinitely holy and righteous God? How can a sinful man have fellowship with an infinitely holy and righteous God? It is only through sacrifice, right? Because the wages of sin is death. So here in Leviticus, we have the fellowship with God through the shedding of blood, now have a fraternity with God, a relationship with God. Then we have the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is a a book about chastening and cleansing. God takes the old man, that old generation, and he puts puts him to death through a series of wanderings, and he kills off the old man. Then we come to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuter, Deuteronomy, two namas, law. He's going to now give new life. He's going to take the new man, and he's going to take them into the promised land. Now, if that sounds like your relationship with God, it should. It's supposed to. God chose you before the foundation of the world. Then he redeemed you, not through the blood of a lamb, but through the blood of Christ, and now we have fellowship with God through the Levitical offerings, all of which point to Jesus Christ. Our fellowship with God is through his son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's only one mediator between man and God, the man, Jesus Christ. See how easy Bible study is? Usually the answer is Jesus, right? Like in Sunday school, what's furry? Has a tail, gathers nets. Teacher, it sure sounds like a... Like, like a, like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. Okay, no, no, it's, uh, that's, that, that's who we're talking about. In numbers, does God take us through a long period of, of uh, sanctification, trials, difficulty, pain, grief, oftentimes sorrow, so that we can be sensitive to the grace of God, so that we can be sensitive to the mercy of God, so that we can just see how healing and how powerful and how glorious it is when he comforts us and, and shelters us from the from the uh, onslaught of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, that's exactly what God is doing in your life, but it's for the purpose of taking you into the promised land. The book of Ephesians calls it the heavenlies. Ultimately, we will be in heaven because our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, even by the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Is that exciting? (laughs) no more sin, no more sorrow, every dentist on the planet will be out of a job, but that's okay, because there will be no more tooth decay. So when we look at the book of Genesis, we are looking at the introduction to the Bible. We are looking at the foundation that God is going to establish through which he's going to now tell us everything that he's going to do, both in time and in eternity. So it is the book of beginnings, The beginning of the universe, the beginning of man and woman, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of family, the beginning of human sin, the beginning of evil. We get to understand here where evil came from and why it exists. But then we also have the beginning of God's promises, the beginning of God's prophecy, the beginning of God's prophetic plan for salvation. And we have, as I said, the most important verse in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So there we have matter, we have space, and when you have matter in space, what do you have? Time. We have movements of the heavenly bodies, and now we have history as beginning, and it's going to go through uh, the end of um, eternity. Uh, And so that's a cool thing. But we also have the Proto-Evangelion that's here, Genesis 3.15. Remember that verse? First evangelical declaration after um, Adam and Eve's sin. We'll come back to this a little bit. Uh, the, the, the tempter tempts them. They, 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 they succumb to the temptation of the evil one. And he speaks, God, God here is speaking to the serpent in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In other words, there's going to be continual warfare between the people or, uh, of Satan and the people of God. Okay? So um, he says, he, your seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's good news. But for the salvation of the souls of man, there's going to be an incredible, um, raging war. And it's going to take place at the cross of Jesus Christ, at the cross At the cross, right? Where I first saw the light. Burden of my sins rolled away. Is there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Are you happy? Yeah. I thought so. I could see it on your face okay so then we have the messiah here the rest of the bible with increasing focus and clarity is going to place a spotlight on one particular individual who is it it's the messiah christianity is the oldest religion in the world it goes back to this verse messiah this is the christ god says right here this is how we're going to take care of the sin problem man has a sin problem that's the greatest problem that he has jesus said whosoever commits sin is the slave of sin The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be what? Free Free indeed. And that was the whole uh, emphasis of the book of Galatians. The whole theme there was freedom in Christ. And so that's exactly what God is at work doing. Now this individual who is going to be Messiah is not only going to be a human being, but look at Genesis chapter 12. When God gives his promise to Abraham, we call this the Abrahamic covenant. It is a covenant, it's an agreement that God makes with Abraham. And in verse 3, it says, I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham's seed. And Abraham's seed is ultimately going to be whom? Jesus Christ, okay, and he's going to be the source of blessing to the whole world. So we have a human being, and now this human being is going to be of the nation of what? Israel, seriously? Israel, yes, Israel. He is going to be a Jew. Is there a Jew that you have become particularly fond of? He is the Messiah. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is the Savior of the world, not just of the nation of Israel. But here he says, in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul, on that verse, builds two books in the New Testament, Galatians and the book of Romans, to show the reality of that truth. So not only that, but then when we come to Genesis 49, he's going to be of the tribe of what? Judah. Good, so God is going to to choose Judah, and then he's going to be of the tribe of Judah, but then in 2 Samuel 7, we also find that Jesus Christ is going to be of the family of whom? David. So like a spotlight, we're zeroing in on this individual because it is absolutely essential that we discover rightly who this person is. You can be um, vague. You can uh, debate over many doctrines of the Christian faith. This is one that you cannot miss. (laughs) You must know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father, but through whom? Jesus, John 14:6, Acts 4:12. For there is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, but the name of Jesus. That makes evangelism pretty easy, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's where the Bible is going. It begins in Genesis, and it goes throughout the whole book till we get to the cross. But then He's coming again. All right. In Micah 5:2 or Isaiah 7:14, we find that He's going to be born of what? A virgin. And then in Micah 5 2, we're going to find out where he's going to be born. Where's that? All right? Phillips Brooks said, uh, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark shrieks shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I could throw away all other Christmas hymns and just think about that one for the rest of my life. That, I won't, though. That's a good one. Then in Daniel chapter 9, we actually have exactly the time when Messiah is going to be born. It's going to be at the height of the Roman Empire. So we here have the beginning of God's purposes, his promises. The book of Romans, in a very real sense, is Paul's commentary on the book of Genesis. Everything that Paul discusses in the book of Romans comes specifically and directly out of the book of Genesis. And the book of Romans has as its theme, the righteousness of God. And so here we understand uh, in chapter 15 primarily that what did Abraham do in order to be declared righteous and to have an, a righteousness that would not, was not his imputed to him? He had to believe, believe God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What do you believe? Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? No, all he believed was that God was going to make of him a great nation and he took him outside and said, count the stars if you're able, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham said, amen, I believe it, let's do it, let's go for it. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You believe God, you take him at his word and you trust in him and in his son and then that brings salvation. So, in a sense, this book sort of makes God understandable. We might even say predictable. When we come to the book of Genesis, we find that God is saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do, and you can know what God is doing and where he's going and how you can get on board. So the purpose of Genesis is to establish the absolute. All points are meaningless unless they have an infinite reference point. All of our points by which we live are finite, but they're really meaningless unless we have an absolute, unless there's there's God who is Personal, infinite, and eternal, by which to base those on, whether it's nature, man, woman, morality, ethics, justice, history, can only be properly interpreted in relation to an infinite God who is Trinity. So man needs to know that there is a sovereign God and that he loves them. That is the message of the Bible. God is sovereign, he's in control, and he loves you. He made you, and he sent his son to die for you. That's the message that the world needs to hear. Otherwise, man is Jason Bourne. He's a cosmic orphan. Jason Bourne, remember, he's found floating in the ocean with bullet holes in his back. He's revived on the ship, but he doesn't know who he is, where he came from, why he has the abilities that he has, and why somebody's trying to kill him. He's Western man. He's every person that you find out there looking for the answers to life. And we come to the Bible, and we discover that those essential questions are answered right here in the Word of God. There is a God who is eternal, he's self-existent, he's self-sufficient, he created everything that we see out of nothing, ex nihilo. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man with dignity because he created man in his own image. Men have dignity, women have dignity, children have dignity. No matter what a person's plight in life, God loves them. He sent his son to die for them, and it is incumbent upon us that we get that message out to um, help people answer those basic questions. That's the basis of all of philosophy. Basically, why is there something instead of nothing? But the question is, who am I? And where am I going? And why am I here? And why do I have the abilities that I have? I'm Jason Bourne until I come to know God. And then everything begins to make sense. You see, in philosophy, they begin with questions. They begin with doubts. They begin with self-questions. You don't find a lot of um, philosophers among the Jewish people. Because they began with answers. They know who God is. They know that pagan idolatry is a lie. Because you come to the Bible and you find a very distinct God who is perfect and who is personal and who is infinite and who is eternal and who has created man as the crowning glory of his creation in his own image. That man might know him, love him, obey him, and walk with him, and ultimately glorify him and forever, beginning in time and eternity, worship him. John 4 for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God, why did you seek me? Why did you take a look at all the peoples of the earth and pick me and pick all of you who are saved and born again so that you might be his worshipers? Is that selfish? Is that kind of self-egotistical of God? Not if you're God. If you're a human being and you do that and you call people to worship you, that's wrong. That's idolatry. That's blasphemy. That's, that'll destroy your life. But when you begin to set all of those things aside and delight yourself in the Lord and let him give you the desires of your heart and you say with David, one thing have I desired and that shall I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple, now life makes sense. Now life has meaning. Now I've got a God who loves me and who has a purpose and a plan for my life and I can lay aside my pursuits And I can say, God, have your way with me and prepare me for heaven someday. Amen? I think we better take a breath on that one. Are you getting your money's worth? That's my goal. That's my goal. A guy in the first service said, take more drinks of water. (laughs) I said, I'll do it. So God is calling a nation and he's establishing the nation of Israel because The nation of Israel is going to be the depository of truth, the custodian of truth. The nation of Israel is supposed to be the nation that understands that God chose them out of all the peoples of the earth, and God had a purpose and a plan for them, and that was to declare to the nations the joy and the wonder of serving the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, you and I have a greater understanding because in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, what do we have? A emphasis and emphasis on the unity of God. In the New Testament, now we have diversity. We have Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. And now we have a whole new understanding of who God is, that he's Trinity. And he works in our lives in phenomenal ways. And so we have a king. We have an incarnation now, and we have a a God that we worship as prophet, priest, and king. Um, So God... Uh, has revealed himself through the Bible. And uh, how many books in the Old Testament? 39. How many books in the New Testament? Three times nine, 27, 66. Every Bible? Yeah. Um, Three kinds of people in this world, right? Those who can count, those who can't. So we have this Bible who has been written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors, um, three continents, three different languages, by people who were musicians, priests, kings, prophets, fishermen, tax collectors, physicians, Pharisees, that all has a single theme and a single, single purpose. And that is to reveal the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most majestic, the most glorious person in all the universe, Jesus Christ. And guess what? Someday you're going to see him face to face. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So let's take a look at the Bible just for a second, and then we'll come in. We really will get to the book of Genesis. The Old Testament can be characterized by two words, preparation and anticipation. We are preparing the world for Messiah. We're preparing the world for an incarnation. And then anticipation, he's coming. He's coming. Here's who he is. Here's what he's going to look like. This is what he's going to do. So that when we get to the New Testament in the book of John, we have Simon saying to Peter, we have found the Messiah. And then Jesus going and calling Philip, Philip calling Nathaniel, and said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know, that's one of the most greatest terms or our greatest uh, designations of Jesus Christ in all the Bible. He shall be called a Nazarene humble alienated or not alienated but separated from sin and separated from Jerusalem and Athens and Rome and all of those places but he said can anything come good come out of Nazareth and Philip said come and see Come and see. That's all we're telling the world, right? He is beautiful. He's wonderful. He loves you. He's got a purpose and a plan for your life. Just come and see how beautiful he is. Come and see how wonderful he is. Jesus Christ can reveal himself to people in remarkable ways. Preparation and anticipation, he's coming. You get to the New Testament, you turn the page, he's here. Here he is. You know what the New Testament is? Reflection and anticipation. Old Testament, preparation and uh, anticipation. In the New Testament, we say, and, and living in the age that you and I live in, we look back to the cross and say, he came, but what do we also say? He's coming again. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is coming. What are we declaring to the world? He came, he's coming again. And in the gospels then we have presentation. Here he is, Acts proclamation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Peter said on his first sermon, here's how he ended it. All every good sermon is a good starting point, good ending point. It's like flying a plane. You want to take off and you want to land safely. It's um, like the lady said uh, Husband didn't go to church, said, How was the sermon? Great. Preacher missed about three or four different good stopping points. All right, so we're going to land when we're ready, okay? But um, <clears throat> he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And so then we come to Acts, we're in the proclamation. Then we come to the epistles, there's an explanation. Who, here's who he is, here's what he did, and here's we, how we are to live. And then in Revelation, we have consummation. This is how God brings all of history to a close and it's all summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. He's coming again to establish God's rule over planet Earth. Paradise lost will be paradise regained. Get ready. Is he coming again? You believe that? Did he come the first time? Yeah, he's coming again. As a matter of fact, um, two-thirds of the prophecies about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ deal with his second coming. The first coming has been accomplished. He's coming again. Okay. So with that as a background, with that as a backdrop, we ready to get into the book of Genesis? Okay. 50 chapters. Uh, let's stand. We're going to read it together. And just kidding. Just kidding. You can stay right there. <laughs> well, in the first two chapters, we have um, creation. Right at the outset, God takes center stage. God is the one who is the hero of the Bible. God is the one who is the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. His power is clearly displayed through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the heavens showeth forth his handiwork, right? Um, It's interesting in Isaiah, it says that when God created the universe, he just stretched out the heavens. Like you and I would stretch out a blanket for a Sunday news school Sunday afternoon picnic with our sweetie pie. He just stretched out the heavens. In a moment of time, he just said, Shh. and you know what? If he would have done that four or five billion more times, it never would have exhausted him. It didn't make him tired. He never had to catch his breath. God is omniscient and he's omnipotent. He's imoffendant. <laughs> These are fun words. Just slow down a little bit and get them right. He is infinite in his omnipotence. Could you imagine? That's what, that's what would be so wonderful about being God. You can do anything you want. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And you know what I'm glad about? Is that he is a good God. When we take a look at creation, we see purpose. We see order. We see design. We see benevolence. When we take a look at our world around us and this crib, some people call it, for which he has created for man to dwell so that he can have a relationship with man, it was made for you and it was made for me by a God who is infinite in his benevolence and in his goodness complexity, um, God is infinite in his ability to create and infinite in his abilities to sustain, and atheism therefore is nothing more than an irrational notion of the rebellious heart. It makes absolutely no sense. As a matter of fact, people are not born atheists. Nobody ever come, becomes an atheist on their own. They have to go to college. You have to, become a sophomore. <laughs> you have to become a sophomore in college and listen to these erudite professors wax eloquent on how it's so great to, 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 um, to, to believe that God doesn't exist that the worst thing that ever happened to you was God, that if you just stretch your wings and get out from under his authority and out from under his constraints, the constraints of your parents, the constraints of government, the constraints of whatever it is that you're living under, your life would be wonderful. Your life would be great. You just plunge right off the edge, though, into an eternal abyss because God is good and God is benevolent and the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. National holiday of the atheists is April 1st, right? Um... (coughs) They have a prayer hotline. You call up and nobody answers. <laughs> now, I know that a lot of, <laughs> I know that, <laughs> I don't know what the number is, so don't ask me. But, um, <laughs> but on a serious side, I know that a lot of atheism is built or, 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 or grows out of pain and sorrow and disillusionment. And when those things happen, who gets blamed? God does. And so the fool says, I'm going to live in my pain and I'm going to live in my cynicism and there, there is no God. But you see, the wise person runs to God the wise person runs and gets himself under the shadow of his wings to receive strength to receive healing under the everlasting arms it's power it's strength it's love Um, there is a balm in Gilead yeah there really is (laughs) to heal the wounded soul there is a balm in Gilead (coughs) to make the to make the sinner whole have you felt the healing touch of your savior rubbing that balm all over you and feeling healed of the penalty of your sin and as he perfects you and and regenerates you and re- and, and continues this process of redemption. It's a wonderful wonderful thing to be able to <clears throat> experience. But remember, you know Humpty Dumpty had a sat on a wall, what happened to him? <laughs> Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. You know what man's doing? He's racing as fast as he can to find all the king's horses and all the king's men. But they can't put Humpty together again. One man said that man's problems will not be solved by those who made them. And we might look to politicians, we might look to philosophers, and we might look to religious leaders. But the place to look is Jesus Christ. He's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. When we come to him, we'll never hunger. When we believe on him, we'll never thirst. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's everything. What those those mean in the Gospel of John is that Jesus Christ is the one who will satisfy every longing, every desire, every passion of the human heart. We continue to be looking for love in all the wrong places when Jesus Christ is simply saying, here I am, come to me. And I will give you rest. Come to me, and I'll provide satisfaction. Come to me, and you'll find meaning and purpose and joy in life. Okay, well, that's Genesis 1 through 3. <laughs> Hope you didn't plan on anything this afternoon. Um, <clears throat> then so we have uh, the, the, the outline for Genesis is four events and then four persons: creation, fall, flood, babel. Then we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's the book of Joseph. That's the book of Genesis. Let's pray and go home. No, those are the events. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2, fall. Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden. They're placed in a, in a beautiful environment. What does Eden mean, by the way? It means delight. Eden means delight. And it is a, I, th- I think it's interesting <clears throat> that the longings that man has right now is all a desire to get back to Eden. Everything that man does, whether it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, alcohol, whatever it might be, man's pursuit is to say there's something wrong, there's something missing, what do I need to do to get back to Eden? The the, the joy is is that paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. Jesus Christ is going to take us back there. It's called the millennial kingdom. So we have a flood, or no, we have have sin, excuse me, and now, man inherits a sin nature, and we come to uh, Genesis chapter four. If you'll turn there with me, I think that we're familiar with the fall story. Satan comes and tempts them to believe that God is withholding something. Satan um, tempts them to um, treat God with contempt, to uh, to say that God is really withholding something from them, and so his character and his nature should be questioned. What they really need to do is free themselves from that obligation and free themselves from that surrender and get out from underneath that authority and do your own thing. So then the Lord said to Cain in verse 6 of chapter 4, Why are you angry? Why Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And guess what? The history of the Bible is all one long story of man and his inability to curb his sin. No matter what administration, no matter what economy God places man under, he will fail. And um, that means that we are dependent upon the grace and the mercy and the power of God to deliver us from that. So then in chapters 4 and 5, we have death just spread throughout the whole human, human environment. And then we have the corruption of mankind in chapter 6. The Lord saw in verse 5 that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so he he found Noah, uh, a preacher of righteousness. He found Noah who found grace and favor in the sight of God. And Noah's going to build what? he's going to build an ark. How long is it going to take him to build? 120 years, good. He said man's life will be 120 years and then the flood's going to come. So he had some help, his brother, his sons got together with him. They all built this ark which became then a floating fortress. You know, it's really fascinating about that ark is that it didn't have a rudder, and it didn't have an engine, there were no oars. There was nothing like that. Your Christian life is meant to float by the grace of God and not tell God where you're going and not tell God where you think you should go, but you're just, you're, your goal is to just float in the power of the Holy Spirit and let him transform your life and take you exactly where he wants you to go. Some of us spend years wandering in the wilderness just trying to get that truth down in our minds so that we can get into the promised land, but you're not going as long as you're holding the rudder. <laughs> you give that over to God. Um, It was not meant to navigate. It was just meant to come safely through the waters of wrath and get to exactly where God wants you to go. Hopefully it won't be on the Mount Ararat that you will end up. So in chapter six to nine, we have flood. God will judge evil. Um, It's a picture of the great white throne judgment, ultimately, and the only way to be safe from God's wrath is to get on the ark, get on the boat. We understand that as Jesus Christ. He is the ark that, that saves. He is the ark that takes us safely through the waters. Then we have Babel. Um, Man said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Man said, not going to do it. We're going to build a tower that's going to reach into the heavens. We're going to be our own God. We're going to pursue paganism. We're going to pursue idolatry. But God, you're not going to be the one to tell us what to do. And God said, oh, yeah? What do you do if you have a bunch of fifth graders in a Sunday school class? If If you don't separate them, they'll destroy Western civilization, right? So you separate them. You put them in different groups, you put them in different rooms, and hopefully you might have some sense of civility. (laughs) Well, that's what God does. He creates the nations that grow out of this with different languages. And then we come to probably the most important verses of the Old Testament along with Daniel 9. But here, let's read chapters 12, 1 through 3. God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. First thing God promises Abraham is what? Land, which we know as Canaan. It's the promised land. To the land which I will show you, I will make you a great nation. Which nation is that? Israel. And I will bless you and make your name great. So it's the personal blessing that God has given to Abraham. And so you shall be a blessing. It's really a command. Uh, You become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's fascinating because God's representative on planet earth in a very real and, and, and wonderful way is the nation of Israel. People's response to the nation of Israel is their response to God. If you reject Israel, you're rejecting God and you suffer the consequences. One of the reasons I think that God has so blessed America is we've always, always been on the side of supporting them. But this, this is gonna be the historical uh, uh, groundwork for how God is going to deal with the nations. Because you think, how, how did a, how did a uh, Gentile get saved in the Old Testament? They had to convert to Judaism and be circumcised and embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, I want to turn to chapter 15 now because all the way through, the Genes- all the way through Genesis, this um, covenant is going to be repeated to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to Elizabeth in the New Testament, or Mary, and then to Zacharias. Look at verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Okay, that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. But I will also judge the nations whom they will serve and afterward they'll come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. This is why we need an exodus. God is going to take his people into Egypt and they're going to be enslaved for 400 years, specifically 430, but God is going to bring them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And by the way, when they leave, they're going to say to the Egyptians, can we have a bunch of silver and gold and precious stones and a bunch of cool stuff? They're going to say, sure, here it is, take it, because that's what they're going to be using to build the tabernacle eventually. And so consequently, God says, my plan for you is to bless you richly, to bless you abundantly, but it's not going to be apart from pain." It's not gonna be apart from grief. See, oftentimes God has this as purpose and plan for our lives and we panic when it happens. But it is granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. Why? Because it makes us sensitive, tender to the grace of God, to the mercy of God, to the power of God, to the way that God can comfort us. But it's also salutary, it's salubrious. That means it's healthy. It, it promotes health. There's just something, something um, sanctifying uh, and we just have to go through it. But God says, don't think that I've forsaken you in the midst of that. I will be right there to love you. See, that the thought is always that suffering and pain is incompatible or incongruous with a loving God. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is going to take them down into Exodus. They're going to be enslaved. But God is going to deliver them powerfully. Look at chapter... Uh, well, in the first eight verses of chapter 17, he repeats that the, um, this is uh, 13 years after the birth of Ishmael. God didn't appear to Abraham a whole lot. He had to walk by faith, but he's changed his name here to Abraham, and, uh, and he says this is going to be an everlasting covenant, it gives him the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. Chapter 22, Abraham has a test. He's going to offer up his son Isaac, but God says, don't do that. Look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 22. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven. He said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Turn with me over to chapter 26 because now the covenant is going to be repeated to Isaac. Look at verse 2. You know, one of the greatest things that you can do in your life is just read the Bible. You're going to understand everything? No. Why? Because the book of the Bible is an infinite book. And you and I have finite minds. And we're never going to fully comprehend this because we're never going to fully comprehend God. But guess what? We have all eternity to do it. Some people say that time will completely be no more, and, and there's a certain element of truth to that, but there's going to be succession of thought. We're going to be learning, we're, and, and, the, and the tree of life is going to bear its fruit once a month. Every 12 months It's going to continue, so there's going to be months, days, years, whatever. Um, Verse 2, the Lord appeared to him, that's to Isaac, and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. We're under an economy of promise now. God has made a promise. He's saying, will you obey me if I give you these incredible promises? Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, there it is, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. It's unilateral, it's sovereign. God is the one who made it. God is the one who's gonna carry it out. It's not a marriage contract where two parties have to agree. This is a unilateral contract. But in order to enjoy the benefits of the covenant, Abraham had to obey. Is that true of you and me? We are recipients of an unconditional new covenant established in the blood of Christ. But in order for you and for me to enjoy the blessings of that covenant, we are called upon to obey. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. So here is the um, uh, covenant being carried on to Isaac. If we go to chapter 28, we'll find that it goes to Jacob. Jacob has a dream. God confirms the um, covenant to him in verses 10 to ten to 17. And then take a look at chapter um, 35. It's interesting that he changes his name in chapter 28. And in ver- chapter 32, look at this again, um, verse 26, when Jacob is wrestling with this uh, angel and Jacob's uh, thigh is put out of socket. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not bless you unless you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. But he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He repeats it twice because the transformation in our lives is sometimes difficult. And Jacob was a kind of a, kind of a worm of a man. He was a supplanter. He, 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 there was a stolen blessing, stolen birthright. He's wrestling with the angel. The angel has to overpower him. Um, does God have to do that with you and me sometimes? When we take, uh, now, now, Jacob was a very, very godly man. Um, he was very sensitive to the things of God. He was a thinker. He, was a, uh, he wasn't like Esau. Um, when we study the life of Isaac, we see one of the most dis- dysfunctional families in all of the Bible. We see um, Jacob and Esau, and, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because he's got a wife named Rebecca, and, and, and they're all lying to each other, and, and they all think that they've got everybody else figured out, and they've got God figured out, and they're victorious, and God is saying, not so fast. Well, usually Rebecca's are pretty cool, though. <laughs> and so we have this promise that's carried on through the Bible to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Look at that. Look at the end. Let's take a look at the end of Genesis, and then we're going to get to communion here in a second. But um, remember the, book, the story of Joseph? Joseph is the clearest type or example of the Lord Jesus Christ in all the Old Testament. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Now, Joseph is a type of Christ, right? They threw him in the pit. They left him for dead. He's raised up from the dead. He becomes second to the king of Pharaoh seated at his right hand, and he becomes the bread of life to all the world. Sound familiar? Um, And so he's worried that the brothers are worried. Now that dad's dead, is he going to come after us and wham us? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, (laughs) it's just funny. It's really fun to study the book of Genesis especially, but especially the Old Testament because human nature has not changed. These guys think they got Joseph figured out. They're flat out lying to him and Joseph knows they're lying to them. He says, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why? Because they don't understand Joseph's forgiveness, his mercy, his compassion. He's not going to hold a grudge against them. He's saying, you guys don't need to lie about this. You don't need to make up this fairy tale and try to convince me that good old dad wants me to be nice to you guys. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, We are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Be not afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. What do we call that? God's sovereignty. Even in the midst of the malice of men, there is forgiveness and there's practical affection from Joseph just like Jesus Christ expressing the love of the father to those who rejected him. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the generation, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land of the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What is that? It's the Abrahamic covenant. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. It's a strange statement because Joseph's gonna be embalmed in Egypt and all of a sudden he's saying, don't bury me here because this isn't the land that God is gonna give to his people. You take my bones with you because when God delivers you, See, all of these truths that we read in the Bible are progressive. They're being communicated family to family, son to son. Um, pe- the pe- people know exactly what God's promises are. That's how Moses got this information. It's just been passed on for generation to gen- generation, along with inspiration. Um, and so when they left, Exodus 13, 19, guess what Moses brought? The bones of Joseph. And then guess what Joshua did when he got to the promised land? He buried the bones of Joseph. Why? Because God is faithful, and God is sovereign, and if God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. How many promises has God ever made and said, oops, that's something you never want to hear your dentist say, but if he does, it's probably a good reason. Time to get a new dentist, maybe. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So we've gone from creation to a coffin. We've gone from Eden in a garden in Eden to Goshen in Egypt. And what, God, what God's people need is redemption. They need to be delivered. And when we get to Exodus chapter 3, what does God say to Moses? Don't forget the Abrahamic covenant. The reason that God is going to deal with the nation of Israel now is because, look at verse 14 of chapter 3, Exodus 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am a semi to you. God further said to Moses, Then you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So he's going to take them into the promised land. He's going to deliver them, redeem them. But what's the purpose? What's the ultimate goal? God is going to set his people free so that there is an individual who's going to be coming through the nation of Israel and he's called Jesus Christ, right? If if the nation of Israel ceases to exist, and by the way, the same thing is true today. If the nation of Israel ceases to exist, we're all in a world of hurt because Romans 9 to 11 means absolutely nothing, but it's dealing with Israel's past, present, and future. That's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about. Most... (laughs) All millennials will preach to Romans chapter 8 and stop there because that's the dispensational section of the book of Romans and it's dealing with this nation of Israel and what God has in the future for them. The church isn't everything, it's a big deal, but it's not everything. Just like uh, if you're like me, what do we do when we open up our high school yearbook? I want to find myself on every page. You don't find yourself on every page in the Bible. God's got Israel, and he's got the church, and he's dealing with them in very unique and powerful ways. Um, That's kind of fun. So what do we have? We have two truths. God is sovereign over creation, and God loves me. I can comprehend God's sovereignty over the universe. I really can. What I need to do to understand that God loves me is to exercise faith. That's the challenge. Because your situation and your circumstances and the world of flesh and the devil is, is constantly bombarding you with the fact that that's not true. The answers to all of life are found here in the Bible, in the revelation of God. Therefore, you as a Christian must stand true to what you hold. We are the philosophical ideal. We are the ultimate dream of philosophy as to find a system like ours. The universe had an origin. It had an origin from a self-existing God who is personal, infinite, and eternal. Man has dignity because he's created in the image of God and there is right and wrong because God within himself relates in a moral ethical manner and has revealed himself in a person who is also mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is an origin and a solution for evil. Isn't that good? Is evil powerful? Is it destructive? History all had a beginning History had a beginning and is going somewhere. So don't jettison your position because you are in the minority and your way of life is antithetical and perfectly contradictory to the world system in which you live. You don't need to do that. This is the ideal. This is what man craves, desires, longs for. A God who loves me, who is personal and has called me into relationship with himself that I might live a pure, holy, righteous life and worship him in time and in eternity. That's the purpose for your life is to be rightly related to God. And the only way that we can discover that is through the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and to understand that he's coming again. Last verse of the Bible, even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with your spirit. So we got one minute to do communion. So whoever's gonna help us serve communion, (laughs) come on up. As we remember that we said at the beginning of the sermon that um, the New Testament is reflection and anticipation. So as we reflect on who Jesus Christ is, we want to do a number of things. We want to make sure that we celebrate the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Um, Remember that there are two ordinances in the church. The first one is what? Baptism. Have you all been baptized? If you haven't been baptized, that's a a crucial step in your walk with the Lord. It's identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. The second one is communion, and it's a picture that we're walking in fellowship with God, that all of our sins have been confessed, that we've examined our heart and let the power of the Holy Spirit come and and examine our hearts and our lives and and show us areas in our lives where there is sin. We confess it. We make sure that we're right with God and that we're right with every other person in the body of Christ. So if you are a believer, take time now as we pass the elements to reflect on who Jesus Christ is what he's done for you, how he shed his blood on the cross and how um, that is the means by which you receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this part of the service really isn't for you. This is a picture of those who are walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ and who have a relationship with him. So just pass the elements on by, but don't pass by the free gift of salvation by grace through faith that he wants to provide for you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you especially for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon himself human flesh, became one of us so that he might die to pay the penalty for our sin and purify our hearts and our souls and to prepare us for heaven someday. Help us, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit to reflect on who you are and what you've done for us and how we can be... um, Make, make sure that we're walking in fellowship with you. We ask it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.